Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks and I'm joined by the rest of the Watford team to my Jao Pedro. It's Justin Peach. Good day to you, Ryan. Justin, how the devil are you? I'm not bad, thanks. I seem to have come down with a cold, which is great timing. I seem to, the cold sort of hit me within two hours. I was fine at like 12 o'clock yesterday and then two o'clock I was just like, nose was streaming. I just had the usual cold symptoms. And now I feel a bit better. It's a very bizarre situation to be in. Mm, that is quite bizarre. It's also bizarre yeah. how your voice sounds completely the same when you've got a cold, hence how mm. monotone you are, even when you haven't got a cold. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's, you know, remember those times when my voice was affected by COVID and it was so deep? You know, mm. It was, yeah, good times, good times. But I'm fighting fit, looking forward to talking about the football. Some really good results. No draws yesterday either, which is makes it easier for, for us to talk about as well. It's also surprising. I think nine of the bottom teams in the in the championship lost um, this weekend. <laughs> so kind of results went the way you expected in some cases. But uh, just quickly on your Barry White voice from during mm. the COVID times, that was fantastic. It really was so soothing. And if anything, I'd rather have that voice all the time as opposed to your normal voice. I'll um, I'll try my hardest to uh, catch COVID again then, and um, we'll see we'll see how that goes. I look forward to finding out how you're going to do that. Welcome to the number one championship podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. We're going to go through all the games in the championship from the past weekend. Talk about some of the big results that have happened. Talk about some of the news from the past few days as well. And then we'll finish off with a little game right at the end. So Sheffield United got their first win in three games with a 1-0 victory at home to Watford. A fairly even first half before Sheffield United took control in the second and eventually scored a very scrappy winner but they won't care how it went in as long as it meant they got a very valuable three points Justin. It was a much better performance as well I thought um, I thought especially the second half as you say first half was quite um, quite close quite even um, but I thought yeah eventually um, the, the pressure told a little bit I thought Batman was in very very good form for the in the Watford goal but I think Berger had a couple of good chances but they were it felt like not at their best, but certainly getting into a good gear that we we know they can get into. Sheffield United, they were pressing, they were aggressive, they were creative. I think Tommy Doyle had a had a wonderful chance as well with a really neat turn on the edge of the box and a shot. Um, and then eventually, um, I think Sheffield United certainly did the homework in terms of the set pieces. They you know, Mick Burney peeled off at the back post and got a very sort of fortunate goal. But it was it was what they deserved because yeah, Sheffield United were were back to their not back to their best, but back to near their best. I've raised concerns recently about how Sheffield United have been playing because the, stra- the standards have without a doubt dropped over the past few weeks but this was a step in the right direction without a doubt. I think they were helped by Watford not offering much but still a solid showing. Ollie McBurney led the line really well and his header led to the goal before Porteous kind of nutmegged Backman um, in his own goal. Ollie Norwood dictated the game. I thought Sander Berger was really dangerous from midfield. Tommy Doyle impressed me as well in midfield they were solid at the back too it was a big win and this could be a big weekend with Middlesbrough losing as well of course Mm. you were still backing the Blades for automatic promotion last week Justin despite Borough's great advances made over the past couple of weeks you'll be feeling even more confident about that now Absolutely. As I say, I think it's just their ability to, to get wins and not be at their best. I know it's 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 quite difficult for teams in Championship to be consistently at their best. If you are, you're going to be in Burnley situation, aren't you, where you're running away with the league. But Sheffield United more than deserve their second place in the division so far. They've been absolutely incredible. They've rarely had occasions where they've been really poor. Like you said, do agree with you. Standards have slipped over recent weeks and that's allowed Middlesbrough to eat up a bit of ground. 
But for Middlesbrough to catch Sheffield United, in my opinion, they've got to have a near faultless um, back end of the season. That's a very difficult thing to do. They 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 can do it. They bounce back from defeats Middlesbrough under Michael Carrick, or they, or they have done that under him so far. But for me, I just think that um, that lead that Sheffield United have built themselves uh, it's just given them a lot to uh, a lot to build upon and a lot to carry. Uh, it's given them a, a good buffer, so it's given them room to 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 drop off at times. It's not it's not going to be wanted, but there's going to be occasions where they do drop off. They have done, but they're back to their best here. And this games like this where it reminds me that this is a very, really, really good Sheffield United team. And it's going to be hard to, it's going to take something special to, to overtake them in second place. For Watford, there's no shame in losing to a side as good as Sheffield United, but it is four wins in 13 league games since the World Cup break. And they are a side who have serious problems, aren't they? Without a doubt. There's a lot of talent there, but knitting it together is turning out to be a big problem. It's a it's a hell of a good thing they didn't sell Jao Pedro last summer, into it, when Newcastle was sniffing around him? Because seriously, without Jao Pedro, Watford are probably a mid-table side. He's the only one who inspires anything in this team. And the problem is he's having to come so deep to get the ball that he's finding it difficult to be as effective as he can be in games. They, they shouldn't be so reliant on him, but they are. Imran Lauza started his first game since coming back from injury so he should help but Ken Seema blows hot and cold Ishmael Assar I mean Ishmael Assar if I was a Watford fan I'd be looking to sell him as soon as possible because 20 million or however much I'd be feeling bad charging a club that much for him because he's gone (laughs) so many games where he's been anonymous this season I I have no idea how a club in the Premier League expects him to make that step up when he's been so poor on so many occasions against championship Mm. opposition this season but Watford may very well get over the line in terms of getting a playoff place because they seem to scratch together enough good results. It also helps that their remaining fixtures are extremely kind. They only have three games against sides, I think, who who are still in the search for promotion between now and the end of the season. But there's a lot of work that needs doing with this team to make it as effective as it really should be. It is worrying that the the problems that they've had all season still persist. And you mentioned a a couple of weeks ago that they look like a team of individuals, which I think is is correct. But is is there a reason for that? Is it down to poor coaching from Bilic? Is it down to maybe Bilic just not being the right fit for the group of players? Um, And I know you brought in Jao Pedro as an example, but he had 70 plus touches in this game. And he was quite ineffective. Um, And when you've got arguably the the best talent in the championship um, in Jao Pedro... You need to be. You need. You need him um, to have an impact in that final third, not coming deep for the ball, as, as you alluded to. Getting him in areas where he can hurt opposition. Um, you should be building your team around that ethos, that that um, that sort of player. It's just bonkers that it's not been the case uh, for for Watford under under Bilic. Um, and he's got previous of being able to do it. Matthias Pereira, the, you know, his West Brom team that won automatic promotion a few years ago, was built around the the, the ability of Matthias Pereira. Um, and it works brilliantly. Um, but he's just not been able to replicate that for whatever reason. It might just be down to him not being a good fit. But I thought the front three behind, or the three behind Keenan Davis, it's a good enough three to have more of an impact in the game than they did against Sheffield United. It's a three that, um, well, if any team's got them, they're pushing for automatics, but it's just not been the case for Watford. Um, and obviously that three was Semmer, Saar and Pedro. Um, it's just not clicking. It's just not clicking. And whether that's down to Bilic, I, I, I don't know, but there's certainly enough quality in that team to be putting out better performances than they are. In the battle between the two sides who started the season terribly, but now looking up, West Brom beat Middlesbrough 2-0. It was a double for Daryl DK, who has come in for criticism in recent times, but this is the kind of player West Brom have got when he's on form and full of confidence. It was fantastic. I think it's his, uh, his six goals and eight starts for him now. Um, and he took his goals brilliantly. Uh, I think his movement for the second goal was particularly good. I know his finish wasn't great, but still very, very, uh, very good movement. And it just shows that he's he's still there and thereabouts in terms of what he can do at his best. It reminded, me a bit, uh, reminded me a bit of his Barnsley, Barnsley days, to be honest with you. His ability to run off defenders' shoulders. Um, and his second goal was well taken as well. But yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a forward again. A bit like Watford and Pedro, you want to build your team around, you want to get balls into the box, into the six-yard box, you want to get the balls into the likes of John Swift and Jed Wallace to be able to put balls across the box, put balls in behind defenders. And they did that. And I think the way Borough, um, I know Borough's defending wasn't great um, for the two goals, but because they probably play, might, yeah, they're playing a, a relatively higher line than, than the other opposition teams, um, allowed DK to exploit his space and he, and he did that very well. 
West Brom got the two early goals and then just simply killed off the game from that point, didn't they? Aside from a brilliant chance for Isaiah Jones in the second half, which forced Josh Griffiths to make a great save. Middlesbrough offered next to nothing going forwards. And I was actually quite disappointed with them because they're behind against a promotion rival. You'd expect better from a team who have been so good in recent times. It it almost seemed a bit like they accepted the loss more and more as the game went on. But in terms of how it affects the race for the top two, Middlesbrough slipped back to seven points behind Sheffield United. Probably not the favourites now, after I said they were last week. They've still got a great chance, though, as far as I'm concerned. They're not going to win every game. It's just simply not going to happen. However, since early November, they've won every game aside from three games against Burnley, Sunderland, when they were down to 10 men for half the game, and this one. And that is a damn good record, whichever way you look at it, isn't it? Their next five games are all very winnable. And when you compare that to Sheffield United, whose next five games are against teams all aiming all aiming for promotion this season, aside from Reading, things can easily swing again very quickly. And come the next international break in three weeks' time, things will be very interesting to see how the championship landscape is set out. But let's talk West Brom, Justin, who needed this win they had one win in five prior to this how were their playoff chances looking for you at this point I think it's those performances at home that really exemplify their their quality and um, efficiency they've conceded one goal in nine home games for example and obviously that that save from Josh Griffith from Isaiah James um, was was fantastic and will do the defence and and him the world of good Um, and as I say that defensive record um, is going to help massively I thought you're probably a bit harsh and on, on Borough because I thought West Brom sounded them out brilliantly. I thought, I thought it was a very good defensive structured performance from, from West Brom. They got the goals early um, and that helped them build a very solid back line. I think if they can continue to do that, um, then they will certainly get into the playoffs. They've shown that they can be consistent. I think that's the positive thing. They can be a very consistent side um, other than this minor blip they've had in recent weeks. Um, they have been a very good team on the core brand. Um, so I think games like this remind you that there's a lot of quality in this team. The you know Jed Wallace getting involved in the assist, John Swift passing as well, Daryl DK getting on the score sheet. Eric Peters was brilliant at the back. Um, there was just a lot of positives from West Brom. It, as I say, it just just highlights the quality they've got in this team. And when it clicks, it clicks. They've beat one of the form teams in the division quite comfortably. Yeah, I'd still be penciling in West Brom for a playoff place right now. The recent form had made me a bit worried but you've got to remember the fixtures were also quite difficult now they've got four of nearly the kindest games you can possibly ask for they've got Hull which would have been tricky three or four weeks ago but they're without a win in four now and then Wigan Huddersfield and Cardiff not saying you may as well hand West Brom the 12 points right now but you've got to look at that and think this is a great chance for them to get their form back on track they're five points off the top six so they're without a doubt fancy their chances of getting in there and they could be a shoo-in if these two goals for DK lead to him being full of confidence again because mm. they need him to be banging form for the remaining games of the season in Gareth Ainsworth's first game in charge of QPR, they were beaten 3-1 at home to Blackburn. This game was made all the more interesting after Ainsworth admitted the only two clubs he'd leave Wickham for were QPR and Blackburn. Not sure he'd be saying that if Man City came knocking, <laughs> but either way, he quickly found out about the job he's got in his hands with this QPR team, Justin. Yeah, it's quite a significant job, isn't it? I thought they, they had some good moments in the first half. Um, and it, they did well to get back into the game. And other than um, Blackburn taking the league, at, uh, the lead sort of shortly before half time, I thought they were well in. They were well in the game. Um, but the, the, the goal just before half time is cliche, but it's a sucker punch. Changes the uh, the dynamic massively of, of what the outcome uh, well, of what the outcome was in this game. But there were some positives. But that second half performance of some of the defending was was, was quite poor. Thought Rob Dickey. That Travis assist is lovely, by the way, but Rob Dickey's reaction time is so slow, so so slow, and I just think it highlights just how low on confidence and um, a lack of awareness and sharpness this, this side has developed over this really poor run of form, which is natural. Um, but as I say, yeah, it, it just it just highlights the um, the big task that Ainsworth has got. He says a lot of really positive things, and it's, that's great. Um, but he's got a yeah big job to to turn around the confidence and. Um, yeah, of this group because it's it's probably at rock bottom now. It really is. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't think they were terrible here, but the confidence is clearly so low in this group. They only managed two shots on target at home 
against a team like Blackburn who aren't the greatest defensively and the goal came from a loose ball after a hopeful cross into the box so this team has been playing poorly for a while and we can't make any judgments on Ainsworth after this single game he even said he's only had two training sessions with the team what I can say is his man management needs to be in top gear because (laughs) they're not going to get points on the board when confidence is as low as it is right now. He's the kind of manager who I would associate as a good man manager because he seems so, you know, friendly in the press and he seems like everyone's just, you know, a top bloke in his eyes. Um, But we'll have to see how he does in terms of turning around the really low confidence in this group. Also worth mentioning, Elias Chair went off injured here, so not sure how serious that one is, but QPR fans will be holding their breath about uh, his fitness. Three wins on the trot now for Blackburn. What an assist by Lewis Travis for that second goal. You weren't too impressed with Dickie's defending, but either way, it was a brilliant ball from him. He's not the kind Mm. of midfielder I associate with making that kind of pass. It was only his fourth assist of his career, but my God, that was a thing of beauty. Sam Gallagher scored twice, only his first goals since October. This was one of the few times I've been impressed by Blackburn this season. It hasn't happened very often and I still don't think they'll finish anywhere near the playoffs, but credit where it's due. This was a good performance and a good win. One player I wanted to single out was Joe Rankin Costello at right back. He set up the third goal, which was almost as good as Lewis Travis's assist, but he's had to bide his time under Thomason. He's been kept out of the side by Callum Britton and was almost cast aside, not even getting picked for the bench earlier in the season. But recently he's been really good. He's really caught my eye. He likes running at defenders, gets forward loads and is a fairly good defender too. He's been given his chance and he's taken it. So fair play to him. Anything to add on Blackburn here, Justin? They they were impressive. And I, I will add that um, sometimes there are teams that finish in the playoffs that you would expect them to, to drop off. I think the, the examples I've written down here, Reading and Huddersfield in, in 2017-18, Ipswich 2014-15, Derby 2018-19. There are some teams that managed to outrun their um, their XG. So what I, I will I say, Justin, what I will say is if Blackburn did it, that would be the biggest outlier ever. If, if they were to do it. And that's why I just do not see them finishing anywhere near the playoffs. It's a, it's a completely fair assessment because I think most Batman fans might well admit that um, the football and performances at times have left a lot to be desired. Um, but this recent run of form over the last five, six games, it, it has really impressed me and it has given me the the idea that they, they might well be in there come the end of the season. Um, as I say, they defend they do defend very well. They've got some really good individuals. It's just about it clicking all together at the same time. And I don't think it's done that yet this season, but it's a big task to, to continue to outrun that, um, outrun your chance creation and, chance, and you know, chances that you concede. But they're doing a very good job of it and it deserves plenty of praise. Let's go over to Burnley and Huddersfield, where it finished 4-0 to the team miles ahead at the top of the championship. Complete domination here from Burnley, probably even the most one-sided game of the season. Probably is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely is. There's no no probably about it. It was as one-sided as you get. Um, I had some hope that Huddersfield might be be able to pull off an upset. So did I, Justin. So did I. (laughs) But then the early goal... Yeah, there's no there's no logical rhyme or reason to it other than Neil Warnock just pulling something magical off. Um, but I, I don't know when was the first minute of the goal? Um, eight or nine minutes, wasn't it, or something? It was it was an early goal and it just killed any hope of it. And then the second one came very shortly after. Just highlighted Burnley's <laughs> quality in abundance. Um, I do have an interesting stat. There's been five prime ministers since Burnley lost uh, last lost at home. Um, which is an incredible stat. 2015, you've got to go back to David Cameron was last Prime Minister. Um, I heard that uh, on on, uh, one of the highlights and I thought I'd I'd bring up the the Prime Ministers as well. I assume you mean in the Championship? Yes, yeah, yeah, sorry, in the Championship. Yeah, it's a big big clue I I left out, but just highlights just how good they've been this season. Um, And it's a bit of a rubbish stat considering that they've been in the Premier League for most of those years, but interesting one. Yeah, yeah. When you leave out a key detail like yeah. in the championship, that kind of <laughs> ruins your points in the first place. But uh, I see what you mean about Huddersf- you, your hopes about Huddersfield maybe nicking a result here. We do a. I'm part of a last man standing group, which I imagine some people will be aware of, where you've got to, you know, pick a team to win each week, and it keeps going on and on and on. 
Burnley weren't such an obvious choice for me, but I was like, oh, Neil Warnock, he could do something here. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that. And instead I picked Everton, which was one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life. But either way, back on the game, I don't think I've seen a team have a man free in front of the opposition goal as much as Burnley did here. I, I don't know if that was down to poor defending or the Burnley attackers just taking this team apart. Possibly a mix of both, but so one-sided was this game. Neil Warnock said afterwards that Burnley are the best team he's seen in 25 years at Championship level. Justin, what are you saying about that? Why well, Sheffield United side did finish runners-up to that Reading team in 05-06. Um, so maybe that's a bit harsh on them. They're one of probably they're probably one of the best footballing teams that have graced the championship. But um, I just I don't just don't think you can really discount that that Reading side um, in 0506. They played four four two for most of the season as well, and they were brilliant, um, which is yeah quite quite a staggering achievement. But yeah, this is a, this is a very good footballing team. Definitely one of the best footballing teams, but one of the best championship sides ever. Let's um, let's wait till the end of the season before we make those judgments. You've always been sceptical about this, Justin. I don't know why you are so sceptical about how how Burnley compare to past championship sides. If they broke the 106-point record, would you admit it? Uh, well, I, I absolutely. The, uh, that, that record's there for the, the best team in a division, ever. Um, if, if, you, if you beat that, then you certainly are. And I think if, even if they equal it, I would probably edge towards Burnley being better than that, um, that Reading side. But what you've got to remember as well, this isn't a dig at finances, but Burnley have spent more money this season than Reading did in that season, for example. You know, the likes of Steve Sidwell was bought on a free transfer. Kevin Doyle was bought for pittance. Dave Kitson was bought from Cambridge. You know, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't millions spent on that squad. Um, so it just highlights the difference. It was just a very well managed group of players um, that I think deserves a lot more credit than than maybe just Burnley one does. I think it's different times, really, when you compare transfer fees and how much I mean it, it was nearly 20 years ago it's just, just terrifying yeah yeah um, <laughs> what I will say is this if I was a Reading fan I'd be very worried about the 106 point record because this is the most in danger it's ever been as far as I'm concerned there's not really any more compliments we can give this Burnley team it is just a relentless machine a, a vicious predator that can kill it's prey whenever it likes. Virtually every player there should be playing in the Premier League and you've still got to have someone to knit it together. I mean, look how much Watford have struggled. Mm. But that just shows how good a job Vincent Company has done. It's just a ridiculous job. And it's the best team I've seen at Championship level. I will caveat that by saying the Reading team of 2005-06, I was 12 when that team was around, so I hadn't seen as much of them as I had Burnley. <laughs> but the fact we're 34 games into a season and that points record is very much reachable is a testament to how good this team is because Burnley can afford to drop six points from their remaining 12 games and still at least match that record they've only dropped seven points from the last 19 so it's very possible when you put it like that quick hello to all the Reading fans who are sharing this with me in three weeks time and Burnley lose three <laughs> in a row in the next few weeks um I mean what can we say about Huddersfield Justin there's nothing they could have done to just stop this absolute mauling was there no um, it's worth I think it's really important to point out no game is a free hit so even if you are expecting to lose you've got to put in a performance I, just, I don't think Huddersfield really um, really did that um, the fans stuck with the, 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 the team which is a positive but it was a it was an ugly mauling that, that can do a lot to damage confidence I think that's perhaps why Neil Warnock was, was quite um, lenient in his post-match presser but You've just got to take this one on the chin and, and hope to yeah, hope to get a reaction in that next game because it's, again, really hard to judge them against the league's best team. You just want them to be a little bit more streetwise, maybe, in their defending. That's what they allowed Burnley um, a bit too much ease getting in behind far too often. Norwich are unbeaten in four after winning 2-0 against Cardiff. Got to be said, Norwich were incredibly shaky at the beginning of this game. It left me fearing another poor result at Carrow Road, but things eventually went their way and it ended up actually being quite comfortable in the end. Yeah, had to ride, had to ride their look a, a fair bit, didn't they? Um, I think it's been a, a case of quite a few home games other than that Hull one is where the opposition have started a lot quicker than, than Norwich have, um, which is interesting. So that's maybe something that needs to be needs to be worked on because... It's not very often you're going to come up against a team like Cardiff who uh, are, are very blunt in front of goal. There's no, no two ways of saying that. They're, they're not very not very prolific, are they? Um, so perhaps if they come up against a team who are capable of taking their chances, it might have been a different outcome. But they bounced back. They showed their quality. That Sara goal was 
a brilliant driven finish. Um, I like those types of goals where they just, not a daisy cutter, but they're just above the surface, like an inch or two above the surface, and they just drive into the bottom corner. It, were, it really was a good finish, and the second one was well worked as well. And then they started to find their swagger. Um, and I think that's... Um, that, that you know, after that pressure of um, of taking the lead, that two goal leader was there, that pressure was lifted, and they they started to express themselves, which was good to see. Not a daisy cutter, a dandelion cutter. Yes, yeah, it takes the head off. So, you know those fluffy things that mm. create pollen, make everyone sneeze during the summer. It's you know it's one that takes the heads off of those. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Uh, loan signing Marquinhos scored on his debut for Norwich. He scored on his debut for Arsenal as well. He looks as if he could be a very talented boy. So I'm looking forward to seeing a bit more of him. Speaking of talented Brazilians, Gabriel Sara has finally kicked on in a Norwich shirt, hasn't he? It took a while for him to get going, but he's been exceptional since... <laughs> well, since the sacking of Dean Smith, really. Uh, <laughs> the game was an excellent example of how good he can be scoring a beauty from 25 yards and producing some brilliant passes including one to Onel Hernandez must have been about 60 yards he's in his own mm-hmm. half I think and managed to find Hernandez in the box find his feet and left him with a great chance but he managed to mess it up which was unfortunate but Norwich paid a lot of money for him so we always expected there was a player there and he's really showed it recently under David Wagner I'm still very doubtful of Norwich's playoff chances but whether they get in the top six or not will depend on him continuing this great form one other thing I will say is Adam Eder's got to play better for Norwich he's not the last few games but I can't say I've been impressed at all he's meant to be the successor of Team Apuki who's expected to leave Norwich in the summer so if Eder is the man who's going to be leading the line from next season I'd be a bit concerned from a Norwich perspective. Anything to add on the Canaries, Justin? Their seventh, one point outside the top six. They have improved massively under Wagner. The ball is just set very low by Dean Smith. So it's just about generating that consistency, making sure they start games quicker. Um, and I think they, I know I've doubted their playoff chances um, in the last few weeks and I still do doubt them. But it's performances like this where they are, where they do take the lead. They did. They did play well in uh, an occasion, just not consistently enough throughout the game. But the quality was there. The quality was on show, and that's what sort of makes you think. Right, you can get in the top six. It's just the performances just just need to up a lot more. Actually, no shame in losing to a side like Norwich for Cardiff. The back-to-back wins they managed last week has meant this result is not a dire one, especially because all the teams below them lost. They have been dealt with a big blow, though, haven't they, with an injury to Callum Robinson, which will keep him out until after the next international break. And that is very bad news for Cardiff City. Isn't it? It's terrible news, isn't it? I winced when I saw that um, break the uh, earlier on in the week. It's just when you don't need it happening, especially at a time where Cardiff's form and performances are picked up massively, you want your best players involved. And if you don't, um, it sort of gives you a, a, a case of, at the end of the season, a you know, because of the the what ifs. What if Callum Robson didn't get injured? Would we have survived? Would we have uh, risen higher at the table? Um, it's that sort of impact. But um, they do have quality in the team, not to the same level of Callum Robinson, um, and it does highlight the the lack of uh, depth in the final third. But I think Lemouche is a savvy enough tactician to to get more out of the team. They just lose a, a player who's more clinical than the players that surround him. Um, but it could have a big big impact. And again, it's it's a, it's a what if moment. If Callum Robson was was available for this game, would they have taken the lead? Because um, they did start well, they did play well in the first sort of twenty twenty five minutes um, before Norwich got that goal. So maybe it could have been a different different outcome. But that's just a big what if, as I say. Justin, let's take a quick break. After that, we'll talk about wins for Luton and Millwall. Welcome back to the Second Tier Podcast. Luton got back to winning ways with a 1-0 victory away at Birmingham. The big talking point from this game, though, was a shocking tackle by Mark Roberts on Carlton Morris that he was only given a yellow card for, Justin, which left me astonished. It was dreadful, wasn't it? I've seen it a few times. I think there's been a few comments from the managers after the game. It was... As much of a red as you've ever, you'll ever see. It, it was a dreadful, dreadful tackle. Um, could have quite easily done a lot of damage to Carlton Morris. Luckily, there was no damage to his leg. It was just his shoulder um, that he hurt by the way he landed. Um, 
so yeah, I, I just quite quite astonished really that wasn't um, that wasn't a red card. I do think the referee was unsighted, but still, if you see a player leave the ground and make impact uh, with an opposition player, it's a good chance that it's a red card challenge. Yeah, it's a red all day long. It's an absolutely horrendous tackle, which very easily could have left Carter Morris with a broken leg, and he's lucky not to have. He's landed on his shin as a Roberts's foot, and if. Mm. Morris hadn't have pulled out then he would have been seriously injured wouldn't he he did actually go off as you say because of his shoulder from hitting the ground as opposed to his leg but it's so clearly a red and we've actually been saying the standard of refereeing has been better this season and that's definitely been the case there will still be bad decisions that happen and this one is indefensible really because it's mm-hmm. it's so blatantly a sending off Back to the game, though, and this was comfortable for Luton. Birmingham didn't even manage a shot on target, Justin. It was a, a really good performance from Luton. It was a close game anyway. It was a tight game where it was going to be a, a moment of quality. And, and it, you know, some pedestrian defending from, from Birmingham allowed Luton to score. It was a good header from Morris, but it was a marked. It was an easy cross to get into the box. So certainly Birmingham would be disappointed with how they conceded the goal. But it was a well-managed game, as you say. I think um, Hogan hit the bar late in the game. It was the only chance, really, that... That Birmingham clear cut chance anyway that Birmingham had and Hogan probably should have put that ball in the back of the net but yeah really good performance that I think the stat I've got written down here is they haven't conceded a goal from open play in 630 minutes in a championship which is pretty good going and they've, they've been quietly getting on with things over over recent weeks which is probably where Luton want to be they don't want to be tagged with that um, that status that they always get tagged with I don't need to mention it anymore they're just quietly getting on with things and their away form has been really really good as well they've got the they've won the second most away points in the league just behind Burnley so it just goes to show how effective they are away from Kenilworth Road yeah I still very much fancy Luton to get a playoff place and this game was a great showing of how efficient they are they stopped Birmingham from having a shot on target and that's down to this whole team being a unit I mean that is a great stat Justin they're not conceding a goal from open play in 600 or so minutes only the top two have conceded fewer goals than Luton only Burnley have a better expected goals against from open play it's it's just fantastic how much the team is just you know focused on restricting the opposition to as few chances as this Luton side concede. They create plenty going forwards as well, particularly from out wide. Cody Drame has been a good signing and Alfie Doherty has been in good form recently as well. Then you've got the strikers who all know where the back of the net is. They've shown time and time again at this level that they know how to score goals. They've got a very mixed run in for their remaining games, but no one will fancy playing Luton. I can assure you of that Mm. because whether it's home or away, they're such a dangerous side for teams to come up against. It is four straight losses for Birmingham, Justin, and the threat of relegation looms larger and larger, doesn't it? It does. I've seen quite a few fans um, question whether Eustace is is still up to the task, which I think is completely and entirely unfair because um, they're not... I just don't think they're considering the the situation surrounding him. Um, And the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting different results. I think sacking Eustace um would be the would would be a bad, bad decision for the for the club. Um I know that supporters will want um that new manager bounce that's proved so successful for them over recent years. But sadly the issue isn't with the changing of the manager, it's the the running of the football club. It's the the quality of player that they've got at disposable and the the depth of their squad. Um I don't have to stand in front of me, but I'm sure Birmingham City will be one of those teams in a division that will sit quite low in terms of the amount of players they've used, which just shows and highlights the squad. So I'm not surprised they drop off in form in the second half of the season because I would just bet quite a few of the players are knackered, to be quite to be quite frank. Um, and I know we've said that they've got one of the best midfields in the division, Bielik, Chong and Hannibal, absolutely fantastic. But who's coming in to replace those players if they're not in form or not fit? There's not a, there's not a, yeah, great deal of selection there for Eustace. Um, so I feel for him, but I, I think the thing that needs to be pointed at the running of the club and not Eustace. And I think it, wanting a new manager bounce um, isn't the answer. It's it, The club needs a reset. Well, on that point, how many managers have been successful under, the, you know, under these owners? None of them have, have they really? Eustace is the most successful one of all of them. And while he hasn't had much in the way of actual success, it says a lot about how poor things have been over the past few years that he's been the best one of all. You've got to remember that pretty much every championship pundit had Birmingham to go down 
before the season started. 19th place after 33-34 games isn't too bad when you think of it like that. And when you hear him talk to the media, you can tell he really cares about this club and he deserves the chance to turn it around. I will admit I was astonished when someone reminded me on Twitter earlier that Birmingham was 7th on Christmas Day, which just seems mad. But seven points above the bottom three doesn't seem as if the tide is going to turn around any time soon. And that's the big worry. But I don't see how sacking John Eustace will improve that that would be such a terrible move and calls for him to go are just absolute nonsense in the Gary Rowett derby Stoke lost 1-0 to Millwall Zion Fleming with the goal what a player he is just in the Bermondsey Bird camp he's he's got to be a contender for signing of the season in the whole league hasn't he maybe one of them I think he's I think he's been a very good signing this season but I don't think he's been one of the most consistent or best I think he's had spells where he's been really good and spells where he's been a little bit absent maybe maybe I'm being too harsh maybe I'm expecting a little bit too much of him but um, I just think they're, they're probably players that have been a lot more consistent that being said he took his goal brilliantly that being said I thought the defending was absolutely dreadful from Stoke for the goal so there's a mix of two there but his finish was so elegant it's just a, a making of the player himself isn't he he does take a lot of shots but this was this was composure at the the very highest level um, the the I'd say a slow jog with the ball at his feet to the end of the box and just a graceful side foot. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful goal. I think you've been very harsh on, I have. on I Fleming just in, in terms of consistency. I think he's been pretty much as good as you get from an attacking midfielder, anti. I mean, this guy gives Millwall so much star quality. Just watch a Millwall game and you'll see how good this guy is. His technique is just exceptional. If you could choose any player in the division to hit a shot from 25 yards out, I can't think of too many others who I'd want to hit it other than Zion Fleming. But he's also very good in the air, likes to run at defenders, runs his socks off and has a long throw as well, because why not? (laughs) I think he's got to be the signing of the season just because of how much he's influenced this Millwall playoff push, because I can't imagine it going anywhere near as strong as it would right now without him. I mean, you take Fleming out of this team, Millwall are lacking a lot of firepower going forwards. And in that regard, Fleming has got to be seen as one of, if not the best signings of the season. Uh, but Millwall kept Stoke at arm's length in this one, and it means another away win for Millwall. We were bemoaning the contrast in their home and away form, weren't we? The Den has been a fortress while away. They were struggling before the World Cup break. It was just two wins on their travels. However, they've now got five wins from seven away from home. And, that could mean a great deal in how genuine their playoff shout actually is, Justin. Absolutely. It's, it's a massive, massive improvement. And as you say, that, um, that ability to remain sort of steely and determined and getting results away from home um, is really important. It's, it's going to, it's, it's the difference maker, isn't it, in, in finishing in and out of the top six. Um, they've been consistent of late and they are deserving of their place in, in the top six because they have been one of the, the better sides. And I think they showed a different side to their game. I think it was a close game anyway, but. Um, I mean, they scored with their only shot on target. It just felt like a classic Millwall performance and a, they need a lot of those away from home. And that's that's absolutely fair. I do think it's quite hard to judge, though, Millwall v Stoke because Gary Rowett's record against Stoke is absolutely magnificent. He's only, won, he's only lost once, one game in nine since he was sacked by them. So it's quite hard to um, assess whether or not this is a really good Millwall performance or it's just Gary Rowett getting one over on Stoke. He puts in that extra bit of effort, doesn't he, when he up <laughs> against Stoke. Uh, they're 17th after this loss of Stoke, nine points above the bottom three. Victor Jokerez inspired Coventry to a 2-1 win at home to Sunderland. A goal and an assist for the big Swede, who is still an incredible, incredible player, you won't be surprised to hear. After looking like their playoff chances were fading away, Coventry have suddenly sprung to life just in three wins on the bounce for them, which has made me go, hmm, OK then. <laughs> yeah, I think that's maybe not the same reaction I had, but in writing my notes, I, I did. What think was your reaction out of interest? It wasn't that? I, I don't know. I, not not as yeah, not as interesting as that. I was just thinking, well, maybe they could, but then sort of the the logic kicks in. I was actually yeah, maybe lost Casey Palmer for a period of time. No Callum O'Hare. Um, Matty Godden's back, so maybe it's just a lot of turmoil inside the head with Coventry, and I think that's probably lending to more as to why they might finish outside of the top six. That being said, Josh Eccles has come in that midfield alongside Hamer. He's been brilliant of late. He was good again against Sunderland. Um, Giochrez is that star quality. Matty Godden, as I mentioned, coming back in. 
Coventry haven't been able to play too up front all season because Godden's been out injured, Martin Waghorn has been out of form and they just haven't had player players available to play it. So imagine if you get Godden fit firing. His assist was very good, really good cross um, and good movement uh, for, for that Giocares goal towards the end of the game. So imagine him playing alongside Giocares. Just adds another dimension. And that's what makes you think, actually, they might be able to make a late run into the top six. Um, but for me, I just think they're maybe just going to miss out because it's just like depth that other teams have. But that being said, it's performances like this where they come up against a very good team in Sunderland and nullify them completely. I think we can safely say the race for the playoffs is coming down to the top 11. So we'll have to see how Coventry fare compared to the other sides. What a goal by Ahmad Diallo, by the way, for Sunderland. There's few things I enjoy in football more than a consolation worldy goal, especially when <laughs> the player wants to celebrate how beautiful a striker is, but knows he can't because his team aren't winning. It's always great to see. In the Paul Ince derby, Reading won 3-1 at home to Blackpool, but it was actually the other Ince who was Blackpool's tormentor. So Thomas scoring twice here. Didn't celebrate the first one before completely forgetting about his allegiances <laughs> with the second one. Uh, we've already mentioned one terrible tackle in this episode, Justin. Reading's Amadou Mbenge did one here, which was arguably even worse. A proper horror challenge where he managed to escape with just a yellow card. Another one which should have been a red, really. Reading 14th with this result and considering the pre-season expectations for them is another example of how good a job Paul Ince has done there. Justin, I'm sure Blackpool are going to pick up soon, aren't they? Aren't they? <laughs> I don't know if you, if you meet McCarthy then. Uh, I mean, Mick McCarthy has asked a similar question, wasn't he? And he's basically said, well, it can go on. He basically <laughs> said that they can carry on losing, which is um, which is terrifying. But they're conceding poor goals. They're still not getting enough out of this really good group of attacking players I feel they have. It's just a worrying, um, a worrying situation, isn't it? And I feel, I feel like it's this game against Reading is going to be one of those games where Blackpool look back on it at the end of the season. Um, if they do go down and, and go, probably that's probably the point where I thought, yeah, Blackpool go down. Um, this was just a, a such a poor display. And I know it was a three-one, but it was a three-nil game. Really, I thought Reading were were controlling. They did a really good job on Blackpool, um, and it's, that's disappointing thing most of all Blackpool needs to be picking up results against teams that don't have a lot to play for they're, 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 they're the easy points if that well, there is no easy points but they're the points you expect to, to to grab and they just didn't they were just not good enough they didn't compete and they lost another game and unfortunately they're making too many mistakes at the back and that that um, that ability to get out of that bottom three is just looking harder and harder and harder yeah the points gap is certainly growing into it now they've got uh, a gap of four points between them and Cardiff. All the teams in the bottom three are on 31 points right now. So things have got to improve because otherwise there could be quite a chunky gap in a few weeks' time, couldn't there? Preston came from a goal down to beat Re uh, Wigan 2-1. There were very loud boos at half-time in, in this one when Preston were losing before a four-minute salvo just after half-time. It's Preston's first league win at Deepdale since the start of November, which is an astonishing, astonishing time to go without a win at home, isn't it? Especially for a team who was so good away. It's Sean Maloney's first loss as Wigan boss. Didn't really matter too much because all of the bottom nine lost apart from Rotherham, who are playing on Monday. Justin, you've been saying you think Wigan are holding the going down baton right now. Even if they do go down, have you seen enough from Maloney to say he's the man who should be in charge of them in the long run? I think so, yeah. Um, I was sceptical of the appointment and I think that's that's probably down to how bad the appointment was of Torre. Um, but Maloney, for me, saying a lot of the right things, even his post-match press, I was quite impressed with what he was saying. The penalty that was disputable um, for for the first Preston goal, he acknowledged that. Probably shouldn't have been a penalty, but it was really disappointed with how the penalty happened, um, i.e. The, the really poor defending, um, Johnson getting into a position where he can where he can hurt Wigan. So, yeah, he's saying a lot of the right things, and this was probably one of their worst performances Um under him and I thought maybe a draw was probably the fairer result as I say he's built some really solid foundations and I think it's probably just come a little bit too late for them to be scoring goals but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule them out just yet anyway because as I say those foundations are incredibly solid that he's built um, and I imagine the confidence is a lot better than it is at like the likes of Blackpool um, and Huddersfield so yeah I, I do think Maloney's a, a good um, a good appointment for the long term as I say he said all the right things and he's impressed with their performances that's all you can ask for 
Bristol City scored another penalty as they won 1-0 at home to Hull. They had gone 468 days without a penalty and have now had two in two games. They've got the taste for them now. Um, someone I wanted to highlight for Bristol City is Anis Mamete. He joined on a deadline day for a fair bit of money from Wickham but has looked really dangerous for them so far. He kind of glides across the pitch with a lot of grace but also loves having a pop at goal as well. He's a very neat and tidy player who I think could end up being a very smart bit of business from a Bristol City perspective. They haven't had too many players in recent years who they've gone out and spent money on and then sold for a profit. It looks like Mimetti could be that kind of player who in a in a few or a couple of seasons' time is interesting a few Premier League teams maybe. But he's only 22. We saw a lot of him when Wickham were in the Championship before and it, it surprised me that he's taken this long for him to make this step back up. But he's looked a really exciting player in a Bristol City shirt so far. Not too long ago, Hall looked as if they could make a challenge for the top six, but no winning four has essentially killed off those hopes. And the final game of this weekend is on Monday night. Swansea meet Rotherham, which we'll talk about on Thursday's episode. Now it's time for this. Yes, it's time for the news and the government has confirmed plans for an independent regulator of English football. The news has been broadly welcomed by football's key organisations, including the EFL, which has called it a landmark moment for the future of our game. Justin Peach has been ringing the bell for there to be a regulator for English football and he joins me now. You must be very happy about this, Justin. Absolutely delighted. Absolutely delighted. More happy, or much happier than David Sullivan is, for example. Um, I'm not surprised that some Premier League chairmen are um, not too happy with it because it means they're going to be they're going to be regulated, um, and that's and that's a good thing. That's a good thing for football because it's been the wild wild west for so many years, which is why so many clubs have been run so poorly, um, and this is going to add a, a an element of control in that. It's going to allow cl- clubs to be to well to be run more sustainably, and it's going to have the the community aspects uh, of football clubs uh, the very centre of it as well so I can only see it as a good thing obviously it depends how it's um, what the output is obviously the government at the moment are pretty shit so (laughs) by that logic this won't be run very well either but at the same time um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of good people who look out for the good of um, community you know assets like football clubs and I think yeah it's it's going to be it's going to be one that's going to change um, the face of football um, in the UK which is an absolute bonus for every supporter who's been through what Derby fans have been through Wigan fans all the fans that have been through clubs that have um, you know had some really bad moments because of poor owners yeah of course the regulators independent I wonder how much they will be swayed by the government that's my only only possible concern I can have about this because if you know football clubs are putting pressure on the government to um, or Premier League clubs I should say are putting the pressure on the government to do some certain decision and they just tap them on the shoulder and say and the government turns to the regulator taps them on the shoulder and says could you just you know do this for me something like that then that makes me a bit concerned about how much influence the government could have over you know the actual regulator but Mm -hmm. we'll we'll have to wait and see in the long term in in terms of the short term it's without a doubt a good good start isn't it Uh, the daily mail says the efl's television rights are set to double in value to over 200 million pounds a year it says they prepare to issue an invitation to tender to broadcasters next week. The Football League is said to have been inundated with expressions of interest from broadcasters since beginning the sales process last October. Streaming companies such as Viaplay or Viaplay and DAZN have joined Sky Sports and BT Sport in the battle to secure live matches. The AFL are considering a hybrid model involving multiple broadcasters. I think this all sounds quite exciting, Justin. If there's something of a bidding war for the rights to show the AFL, that means more money for clubs and possibly more eyes on the game, doesn't it? That's the that's the major positive, I think, for a lot of people um, or for a lot of football clubs. This increase in uh, potential revenue is, is a big bonus. And obviously, as you say, the eyes on the championship and or the AFL in general is a major plus as well. I think as a consumer, though, having to buy more subscription models not ideal spending a lot more money than you probably want to on 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 having to watch football but as i say it's it's a major major positive major positive uh, and again a step in the right direction if this is going to be the case but as i say um 
it's a case of we'll wait and see, see wait and see what that final um, final outcome is because obviously we can't can't get too excited because it, it might end up being a lot lower than than that suggested uh, price. Yeah, well, you make a very good point with the multiple broadcasters because if you know the average fan is having to fork out mm. loads of money on different platforms and what have you, that's obviously not good. But on the other hand, if you think about Sky Sports, for example, how many EFL games do you have each weekend? Two max, two or three max, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you've got all these different broadcasters who are showing different games, then that could be good, especially if in the future the 3pm blackout is taken out of the question. So I think it's exciting. Um, it's interesting because I, I was always under the impression that the EFL is quite a hard product to sell to broadcasters because it's, it's not. not as popular as we might think it is even though we are a championship podcast we think it's amazing um but in terms of actual viewing figures it's it shades in comparison to the premier league for example but maybe it's just not been marketed well enough who knows only time will tell but i see this as good news nonetheless in injury news norwich midfielder kieran dowell's going to be out until mid-april with a knee injury he's been one of their best players since david wagner came in so really unfortunate timing for him middlesbrough defender tommy smith has signed a two-year contract extension he's been a revelation at the riverside stadium after joining on a free last summer he's been a key part of michael carrick's team i've always thought he's a very underrated player anyway to be fair and bristol city have unveiled their new home kit for the rest of the season and next season now you'll be forgiven for thinking this is because of modern football and clubs are just releasing new kits even earlier to try and make a quick book but that's not the case here it's because the club have ended their kit agreement with Hummel after the manufacturer's distributor went into administration so Bristol City have signed a new agreement with O'Neill's and shown off their new kit which looks very dapper O'Neill <laughs> sorry in between us quite <laughs> I was wondering why you're chuckling then and then you thought of a random in between as quote from years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Good value there for the podcast. It's a lovely kit, though, isn't it? It is a mm. very nice looking kit. So kudos there. But I will never break away from Hummel, no matter no matter how bad their press is. Well, maybe that's probably a bit too far. But yeah. yes, yeah. I, I don't know what's going on with Hummel now, um, but their kits have been very nice over the years. So yeah. if this is the end for them as a kit manufacturer in the championship, that'll be a shame. But yeah, the the new Bristol City kit is lovely. It's. Uh, I think pinstripes go a long way they in do. football kits. They, and I'm surprised, classy. Yeah, classy, aren't I'm they? surprised more teams don't do them because it's a mm. very simple way of having a kit that makes people go, oh, that's juicy. Um, let's do the polls. This is the part of the show where we give the listeners three questions on Twitter because we want to get their thoughts on everything to do with the championship. The first poll is this. Are Burnley the best team ever to play in the second tier? Yes or no? No. I will go yes. 42% of people said yes. 58% said no. Is Victor Jokic is the best striker in the championship? Yes or no? I think, yeah, he's the best striker in the championship. Um, you got to mention Akpom, obviously, being a, the um, highest goal scorer at the moment, top goal scorer at the moment, but Jokic is a number nine. Absolutely. Well, Akpom isn't really a striker now. Well, exactly. He's, exactly. he's number 10, isn't he? Um, but yeah, I think he is, for me, there are, I mean, I, I still rate Olim at Burnley massively after how well he's come along this season compared yeah. to how he was before, particularly. But yeah, Victor Ocres is the standout one for me. 49% of people said yes, 51% said no. Just mm. quickly looking at who else others have said. Stewart, okay, fair enough. He's very good, but he's not injured. Uh, DK, a bit hit and miss. Lyle Foster hasn't even played really as Burnley yet, so I'm not sure you can really put him in the conversation. And finally, how much water do you drink a day? Less than a pint, one to three pints, three to six pints, more than six pints. I don't, I don't, I don't measure in pints. This isn't the sixties. Um, I don't know about four liters. I think I I do a lot of CrossFit, so I need to be well hydrated. Obviously, I didn't realise it was old fashioned to rate things in pints. Um, <laughs> I used to, I went through a period where I set myself at least a target of eight pints a day. Um, and honestly, I had acne at the time. That's completely gone now, ever since I did that. So if... You cured yourself with H2O. Exactly. H2O is just fantastic for the old skin. Um, but I still drink a fair amount nowadays. I'm not sure if it's more than six pints, but there you go. Um 48% of people said one to three pints, 25% said three to six pints, 17% said less than a pint, 10% said more than six pints, 17% are very dehydrated. 
Oh, yeah. How are people surviving with three pints of water a day? That's bonkers. <laughs> I mean, three pints is, is all right, but less than a pint a day is an astonishing amount. Unless you're drinking, I don't know, Oasis or what, what's the KSI one? Prime. Have you tried yeah. that, Justin? No, I haven't. I've never, ever, ever tried it. I've tried it. It's actually very nice. The blue one in particular is delicious. However, considering it's being coined the key to hydration or whatever, it left me, it left my mouth very dry. Um, oh dear. So good. Try it out and see what you think. Anyway, now it's time for this. Hi, Simon Grayson here. Yes, it's time for Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight, and it's another solo Hateful Eight for Peachy Boy. So I'm going to ask him to name eight of a certain subject. All he's got to do is name all eight. So, for example, if I would say, name Steve Bruce's last eight clubs, and he would say Villa, that's one down, and then Newcastle, that's another down. But if Justin would say Weymouth, he'd be out. So he needs to give me all eight answers. Justin, this week, Simon Grayson is willing to give you three lives on this one. Is that all right with you? Yeah, it was a car crash last week, so I'll take that good uh, you like to think of yourself as a bit of a social media man don't you so this is a social media themed question can you name for me the eight most followed championship teams on twitter uh this is going to be heavily construed by who who went into the premier league at the right time um yeah i can certainly try i can okay. certainly try well who's your first guess then my first guess would be burnley that is correct. Burnley, a seventh. So maybe not as high as you thought. 761,000 followers uh, for the Clarets. What's your next one, Justin? Uh, I feel like West Brom like, recently hit a million. Because I think I saw some fans bragging about it randomly. Yes, they're the most followed team in the championship with 1.2 million followers. So you'd be correct. That's two down, six to go. Surely Blackburn are in there. I know it's a town football club, but they were in the Premier League for a long time. They've won the Premier League. Had some big names cross paths there at Ewood Park as well. So surely Blackburn are up there. Blackburn are not in there. They're not even in the top 14. So I haven't even written down how many followers they've got, but it's less than 367,000. I can tell you that much. So that's one life down, Justin. You've got um, two lives remaining. Who's your next guess? Still six to go. Got to be Stoke. The old Pulis. Pulis bringing in the followers. Yep, 1.1 million followers for Stoke. They're the second most team followed team in the championship. So that's three down, five to go. Sunderland. Yeah, Surely. I feel like Sunderland are an obvious one. They've got one million followers. Uh, they're the fourth most followed team in the championship. You're halfway there, Justin. I, again, Watford. It's a town football club. It's always hard to gauge teams that aren't from cities um, which is a really weird way of measuring um, but surely Watford they were in the Premier League for a bit they were in the Premier League for a good period good period of you know, overseas fans maybe following them I don't know I'm not sure what the town or city status has got to do with it but <laughs> Watford are there they've got 905,000 followers that's the fifth most in the championship so you have got three remaining three remaining Blackburn aren't one of them um, have I mentioned, have I said the top one yet? Yeah, West Brom. West Brom, right, okay, that's fine, that's fine. Sheffield United, mm, no, that's a nervous one, that is, that's a nervous one. Sheffield United, a ninth. They've got 538,000 followers. Um, that means you've got no lives remaining, Justin. Um, Shit. Three remaining. Three remaining, it's good. I've just got to... I've just got to focus on the teams that have been in the Premier League for the longest amount of time. QPR, they 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 were in the Premier League when social media kicked off, when Twitter really started to to hit um, its its early stages. So maybe fans flock to uh, Loftus Road to well, in a, on the internet, um, flock to Loftus Road on the internet to stay up to date with them. I don't know. This is really difficult. Um, QPR, something Norwich. Go on in Norwich. Norwich are sixth with eight hundred and seventy-eight thousand followers. So you'd be correct with them. Uh, you've got two remaining, Justin. You're looking for third and eighth. Third and eighth. Hull. 
Hull have got 587,000, which is the eighth most. So Aye. you'd be correct with them as well. You've got one remaining, and it's the team who's third. The team who's third. It's got to be QPR. No, it's Swansea. Swansea have got 1.1 million followers on Twitter. So they are the third most followed team in the championship. And you'd be correct, Justin. Uh, Sheffield United were ninth. QPR were tenth. I don't know why you were so transfixed with QPR, but um, there you go. Um, Ironically, the three teams you were looking for at the end were all cities. So maybe city status does have something to play with it. Uh, But there you go, ladies and gentlemen. A a very good performance there from Justin Peach and Simon Grayson's Hateful You must be delighted, Justin. I am quite happy. I am quite happy. That was a, that was a tough one. Um, I don't know why so many people follow football clubs on social media. It doesn't make any sense because updates are just, they're a bit dull, aren't they, from, from clubs? I don't know. Maybe it's a bit harsh. It's interesting to get into the psyche of uh, the social media user, isn't it? I could not care less. Anyway, this has been the Second Tier Podcast. We'll be back again on Thursday to talk about the handful of midweek games we've got coming up. And we'll look forward to seeing you then. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. I've been Ryan Dilks. I've been Justin Peach. And a bloody big thank you for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,